From New York, one of the most exciting cities in the tri-state area, it's Late Night with David Letterman. Tonight, Francis Ford Coppola, humorist Henry Morgan, champion dogs from the Westminster Kennel Club, professor of anthropology, Walter Fairservice, and a special Late Night Report on the fabulous February 8th Day Parade. And now, a man who thinks the Earth has broken out of its orbit and is hurtling toward the sun, David Letterman! Thank you very much, and uh, good morning. Welcome to Late Night. My name is David Letterman. I hope you folks uh, had a nice weekend. Anybody here whose mother attended Ball State University? Just... Uh, I know that's meaningless to you folks at home, but we enjoyed it, didn't we, ladies and gentlemen? Yes, that was David Letterman, and you're probably wondering... Why am I beginning this episode <laughs> of a, a clip from uh, an old Letterman show? Uh, this is Michael Moore, by the way, and you're listening to Rumble with Michael Moore. This is my podcast. Thank you very much uh, for tuning into this. This is a special episode I've been wanting to do for uh, some time because uh, I get asked a lot, like, who are your influences? And uh, whether it's in filmmaking or politics or whatever, and and, you know, I have, I have the answers that are correct for me. You know, if it's filmmaking, it's Stanley Kubrick. For documentaries, it's Peter Davis, uh, Barbara Koppel, um, you know, others. I'm sorry if you're listening, I've left you out of this, but you get the gist of this. And, and politically, you know, whether it was all the people I grew up with, uh, Ramparts Magazine, uh, the old Village Voice and the old Rolling Stone back when they were great, great publications, Noam Chomsky. Lots of influences in terms of, uh, you know, the Berrigan brothers uh, played a significant role in my life and the two Catholic priests that uh, were anti-war protesters. A lot of the people that led the anti-Vietnam war protests were, you know, probably instrumental when it came to as I was growing up as a teenager. But, um, but when it comes to my work that many of you know, my films, my documentaries, I would say one of my greatest influences was David Letterman. And some of you may find that strange or whatever, but in this episode, I'm going to show you why he was a mentor of mine, even though he didn't know he was a mentor, but I was such an early fan of his. He had a morning show on NBC. Uh, he was a stand-up comedian for many years, but they gave him a morning show like at, you know, 1030 in the morning. And it was not on very long. I'm going to say maybe a couple of months in 1981. And they had to shut the show down, I guess, you know, for whatever it was. He's not a morning show kind of guy. But his satire was so sharp in his wit and his total dislike of authority and, you know, all the poobahs that run our society. He had no respect for it. And I mean that in, in, as the highest praise. And so um, uh, in 1982, MB NBC came back and said, we decided that we're going to give David Letterman another show. And this is going to be a late night show that's going to be on at 1230 at night after uh, Johnny Carson, who was on at 1130, if you're on the East Coast or the West Coast. If you're in Chicago, first of all, I don't know why you're in Chicago, but, you know, it was an hour earlier. Uh, <laughs> just kidding. You know, Chicago's our neighbor, if you're from Michigan. Anyway, so when they announced that he was going to, that he was going to come on every night at 1230, and I just thought, oh, and, and you have to understand, if you didn't watch the old Letterman late night on NBC, he, yes, it was a late night talk show, but he had decided that he was going to do the anti-talk show, not the typical Johnny Carson kind of show, but rather something that sort of took the piss out of, out of this, you know, sort of, eh, you know, it's, it's, look, I don't want to say that people came before him, they were very entertaining and funny and all that, but there was kind of a. You know, it was a, it's something it's an idea that came out of the 50s and by the time of 1982 a lot of people just weren't you know weren't really into that kind of show as he wasn't so so now he's going to come on he's going to start the first show is going to be in the first week of february 1982 i'm in flint michigan and i decide 
then I have to be there. I have to be in the first audience or two or whatever, but I have to get myself to New York. I had no tickets to the show or anything. Uh, I just decided I, I, I needed to sit in that audience because I so admired his form of humor, especially as it went after the elites in our society. And so I made my way to New York City. No guarantee that I'd ever get in. I found out that the tickets were all gone. First of all, that's the first thing I find out. But at 6 a.m. every morning, Rockefeller Center, there was a line. And you could get in the standby line at 6 a.m. And I can't remember, somewhere between then and 10 a.m., they would know how many t- seats they would have empty. And uh, and so I went there for a few days, and I could not get, you know, I was too far back in the standby line, whatever. But by the time of his fifth show, the fifth show of Letterman, fifth show ever, I mean, this is his first week and late night, I get there super early. And I get a ticket. I get to go in uh, that afternoon when they tape it around. It was about probably 5.30 in the afternoon. I was so excited for the whole rest of the day. I couldn't believe it that I was going to actually be sitting in the same room with David Letterman. And as you heard, that, what I just played here at the beginning, that was the opening of that night's show where I'm sitting there in the audience and they announce that Dave's guest tonight is the great. Francis Ford Coppola. Godfather 2, The Conversation, and Apocalypse Now, those three films are in my top 20 films of all time. I could not believe I'm here with one of the great directors, one of my favorites, and he's the guest on the show. Wow. And now this is, you got to understand, this is five years before I start, start to make Roger and Me, my first film. And What happened that night, what happened there with Letterman and what happened with Francis Ford Coppola altered my life and became the first blip on my internal radar that this was something I had to do to make a movie and to do it in the style that was not the typical traditional documentary. And when we come back, I'm going to play you this epiphany, part of the conversation between Letterman and Francis Ford Coppola. And um, the time came here in February when the it was the 40th anniversary of the beginning of Dave's late night show that first week. And that means it was 40 years ago here, a couple months ago in February, where I got to sit in the audience of his first, one of his first five shows. And then a couple of weeks ago, Dave celebrated his 75th birthday. So I thought, you know, we let this go. We were going to do this back in February, but man, so much has been going on with the war and COVID. Trump still around, et cetera. All the stuff we're having to deal with. And I just kept putting this off and putting it off. And then finally, I just, I wanted to do this just because I want to talk to you, the people who listen to this podcast, and just let you know a little bit about myself and how I got here. So if you don't mind participating in this, I, I think, I, th- I hope, I think you'll enjoy it. But first, I want to thank our underwriters here uh, tonight. And first up, uh, I want to thank stamps.com. A huge thank you to stamps.com for supporting this podcast and supporting my voice. So folks, as I just said, you know, we're all living in difficult times between COVID, rising inflation, the Ukrainian war. We're all looking for ways to just kind of maintain, right? Get through it save money because we're getting hammered. Well, stamps.com is a great place to start. Stamps.com gives you access to not only great rates, but exclusive discounts on shipping because it's not just the United States Postal Service that they work with, but also UPS. Now I'm talking about a 30% off the postal service rates and up to 86% off if you use UPS through stamps.com. So you will not find these discounts anywhere else. And the best part about stamps.com is that you can do it right from home. You don't need to go to the post office. All you need is a regular computer and a printer. And within minutes, you'll be up and running and printing official postage for any letter, any package, anywhere you want to send it. Myself and my crew here, we've been using stamps.com during our film productions. We've been doing it for years. It's an easy way to be mobile, to travel, and to be able to send whenever we need, wherever we're at. And especially during COVID, 
it's actually been a good thing to not have to go stand in line at the post office. It's helped keep us safe and we still get our packages going to wherever we need them to go. So my friends, start mailing and shipping with stamps.com and keep more money in your pocket by using them every day. Sign up with the promo code MORE, my last name, M-O-O-R-E, for a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. And here's the best part. There's no long-term commitment you have to make. There's no contracts. You just go to stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the page, and enter the code MORE, M-O-O-R-E. That's it. Thank you uh, to stamps.com for being an underwriter of my podcast, Rumble and for uh, supporting all of us in the work that we do. I'd also like to thank our other underwriter uh, tonight, and that is Shopify. I want to thank them, first of all, for not just, again, for supporting my voice here on Rumble, but Shopify has also been a longtime supporter of this podcast, and it was instrumental in the launch of the More Store that we started up last year. Now, if you've ever seen me on TV or out on the street or maybe in my films, you know that I am, and let's just say, quite fond of baseball hats. <laughs> That's just me. I've been that way since, you know, I was a teenager. For years, people would stop me on the street and ask about my hats and where could they get one. And for a number of years, I would frequently find myself giving them person on the street, just giving the one I have on my head, take it off, sign it and hand it over. But then of course, COVID happened and I found myself alone with a lot of time to think, <laughs> surrounded by all these hats in my apartment in my apartment and the mugs and the t-shirts and all the other stuff here that we have for the show. And I, in turn, I thought, wow, you know, I could take, if I just sold these, I could take a portion of these proceeds and, and support some of the causes that I'm passionate about, like getting civics classes back in our public schools and ending voter suppression. So when we set up the more store working with Shopify, that made the idea a reality. Shopify is an all-in-one commerce platform that you can use to start, run, grow your own business. Shopify gives you access to resources once reserved only for big businesses. But now you and anybody listening to this can set up your own thing to sell your own thing through Shopify. Shopify is more than a store. It grows with you. So if you have an idea or an existing business, join with me and millions of others who use Shopify and go to shopify.com slash Rumble. Make sure Rumble is all lowercase. R-U-M-B-L-E. Go there for a free 14-day trial. Get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. So my friends, grow your small business with Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash rumble right now. Shopify.com slash rumble, all lowercase when you write rumble. And thank you, Shopify, for supporting this podcast. So now back to my very first encounter with uh, David Letterman and Francis Ford Coppola. Francis Ford Coppola, again, one of our greatest directors. And uh, the reason Ford is his middle name is he was born in Detroit. His immigrant father, uh, they asked him the baby's name when he was born at Henry Ford Hospital. And uh, he said, well, it's, it's uh, Francis uh, Coppola. Well, what's the middle name? And he didn't understand what they meant by a middle name. And then he said, uh, he's just looked up and he saw the word Ford because it was Ford Hospital. And he just said Ford. And that's how Francis got his middle name there in, in Detroit. So, you know, as Michiganders, of course, we're proud of the fact that, uh, that he um, is from Detroit, from the state of Michigan. Um, but of course, later, you know, they moved uh, to New York and grew up in New York. But um, uh, so I was very excited that he was going to be the guest uh, on the show. And for such a long time, I mean, this is, this is probably the best way to explain just how big of a fan I was of Francis Ford Coppola. When it was announced uh, that uh, his film Apocalypse Now had been completed and that it was going to debut in only three theaters in North America. And in fact, the, the film that's going to be out in these three theaters, in these three cities for just a couple of weeks is going to be essentially the way his cut, the way he wanted to end the film. A couple weeks after that, it then is opened across the country with a different ending, probably an ending that was more suitable to the studio. But I wanted to see the I wanted to see the Coppola ending, and so here I am in Flint. We're about 250, 270 miles from Toronto, and Toronto's one of the cities. Apocalypse Now is going to open in New York, L.A., and Toronto, and I decide to drive to Toronto. Now I know. 
before it sounds like I'm too crazy. I know who, right. Who drives 270 miles to see a movie? Um, to be honest, me, I would, I would drive to Chicago. I drove often a very long ways to see a movie sometimes in its first week, because I wanted to see it when it was fresh before everybody was yakking about it. I loved film so much. I loved the purpose of it. I loved the feeling, you know, again, I had no film school, but I, I would watch a film over and over and over again, study it. And I would go to the films that weren't very good because <laughs> I wanted to figure out what, if I ever got to do this, what would I not do? What would I have to make sure I didn't do? And the fact that I was going to, you know, I'm sitting in the audience, the band's playing Paul Schaefer in the group there, and it's all the warm up time. And I'm so excited. I'm so nervous. I've had to wait for a number of days before I could get a ticket. And, um, and all of a sudden the announcer starts and that's what I played at the beginning of the episode here. And now after a, a brief monologue, Letterman brings out Coppola, Francis Ford Coppola. And uh, I'm not going to play you the whole interview, but I want to just, I'm going to play you a segment of it because remember now I'm sitting there. We are, uh, what did I say? Five, five years away from me starting my first film. So this is only a dream right now. It's only a thought in my head and I have no film school, but if you're sitting in the same room with um, Francis Ford Coppola, you're in film school, class is in session. And Dave brings him out and starts to ask him a number of questions. And uh, I'm just going to play a little bit of that for you right now from February 8th, 1982, Rockefeller Center, NBC, uh, Late Night with David Letterman. Francis Ford Coppola is perhaps the finest filmmaker working today with credits that include The Godfather, The Godfather II, The Conversation, and Apocalypse Now. Uh, he is a showman in the finest of Hollywood traditions. Not only are his films thrilling, uh, but the events surrounding the release of those motion pictures equally thrilling. And uh, that's certainly the case with his most recent film, One from the Heart. Please welcome Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> Very nice of you to be uh, on the television show here with us this evening. We mentioned in, in the, your introduction there that uh, uh, very often the release uh, around your films or the re release of your films is as exciting as the films themselves. Why is that, do you suppose? Well, it's exciting for me, too. I don't think we really do it intentionally. I think it comes from the fact that, uh, well, for example, I'm starting a film now in, in three weeks. And we don't really have the money for it all together. Mm -hmm. But we're in a position where we have all the people and we're working on it. And we want to continue working on it. So each week you say, well, let's go another week. And you're sort of financing it yourself, hoping that next week someone will come in with the money. And what happens is then you get so far deeply into the production that you sort of have to go all the way. And then suddenly someone says, well, you owe $14 million. <laughs> now, you raise an interesting point there that people who f fancy themselves artists probably could understand, but people who fancy themselves businessmen are probably going, Francis, that's how you get into trouble. Get the money first, then go to work. Well, you know, I mean, it's, it's my feeling when you want to get a movie going, it, it, it's, it's so easy for someone to come in and say, well, we don't like that idea or we don't think uh, that's like anything that's done well. So, so really, uh, if you want to start, my feeling is just start and, <laughs> and follow your heart. And, and, and really, Godfather 2, I remember, we had spent a million dollars building the sets before Paramount ever told us we could make it. Now, see, now what would have happened uh, if Paramount said, oh, we've decided against it? I mean... Well, that's sort of what ha has happened to me at certain times, and this notion of me being a risk-taker isn't really so true. It's not that I'm a risk-taker, it's just that once we're making the film, we don't want to stop, and we, we sort of, maybe in a naive way, think that, oh, it'll all work out. The risk part is the least important. We're not thinking about that. We're thinking about the film. We have been led to believe, uh, maybe uh, you shouldn't, we shouldn't be believing this, but it looks like if this one doesn't work, there goes your house, there goes the speedboat, there goes the uh, vacation, there goes the studio. Well, the speedboat went on apocalypse now. Oh. <laughs> well, that, the, that interview, that just, it blew my mind because here he's saying that if he wanted to make a movie, something was so important to him, he wasn't going to wait around for a studio to give the green light. He wasn't going to wait around for some rich millionaires to give him the money to do it. He was just going to do it. He was just going to start it. So he, he would start his films without having the money, which sounds crazy. It is crazy because 
it's, it's a lot of first time filmmakers have gone into some serious debt. And by this time, you know, when, when, uh, when he made apocalypse now, and certainly when he made uh, the two, the first two Godfather films, you know, he'd already made a, a few films before that. And he'd helped produce films with George Lucas. So he wasn't completely new to this. He knew the routine. And yet he's saying, if you've got this in your heart, in your head, this movie, the story you want to tell, you just go do it. Tell with the money. And of course, this isn't the way we're trained, right? And we would be, all of us, too afraid to even think of doing that and going to that kind of debt, going bankrupt before you're even a filmmaker. But his fearlessness, his fierceness, his not being afraid. And we all know this feeling, right? Especially when we don't know if we're ever going to be able to do this. Could I do it? And I was just sitting there mesmerized. Yes, of course, this is the way to do it. Just do it. Before that was even a slogan at Nike. It was just, that's what he was saying. Do it. And that stuck with me. And by the time I started Roger and Me, five years later, I had lost my job, which I'll explain here in a few more minutes on a, another clip. But I'd lost my job and I um, was broke. I was on Michigan unemployment, $98 a week. That's what I was living on. And how could I ever have the idea of, yeah, oh yeah, let's just start a movie now. Yet, what he said, what you just heard him say, and the way he said it, and just the, just the insanity of it, sometimes you need to embrace your insanity. I learned that that night, and I thought about it for a number of years, and when I found myself in that position where I did not have the money, I was able to start the film. And as I've told you on a previous episode, I, I had a, a person that I met who was a filmmaker in New York City, and he offered to come out and shoot the first 60 rolls of Roger and me. No charge. Did it for free. <sighs> but it was the inspiration of that night in February of 82, sitting there listening to Coppola and Letterman. And if you're listening to this now and you've been thinking about whether it's a movie or whatever you want to do in your life, you want to write that novel, you want to, you know, paint a mural on the side of some building in your town, whatever that is that your heart is telling you to do. I don't want to be responsible for telling you to go do something crazy and then you are in bankruptcy court, but I will say that there are enough examples of people who have just gone ahead and done it because it had to be done. And I know that that thinking applies to some of you. And I want you to think about it and play this back again. Share it with some friends. Play, play what Coppola said. See what they think. <laughs> well, anyways, uh, 1987 came around and I decided to just go for it and start this film with little or no money in my pocket. And, um, and of course, by this time now, I've been watching Letterman for these past five years. And again, again, if you were fans of that early show, that late night show on NBC, Dave went out on the street. He went across the country. He would do all these things that were just so like crazy and outrageous and scary. Oh my God, he's going to get arrested. But he didn't care. He too was fearless. He went after the big shots, the politicians, the celebrities who were just full of themselves episode after episode, night after night, Letterman did this and he did it with such wit and grace and satire. It was inspirational. And for years I watched, I watched the show every night and it helped me sort of refine how to reach people through humor. Because I think if you're going to, if you're going to do something, especially something political, if you just beat people over the head with the politics. They're not going to watch the movie and they're not going to tell other people to watch it. But if you put your politics inside a vehicle that's essentially a vehicle of humor and satire, it goes a long way to reaching a lot more people with the things that you want to say politically. I learned that. I learned that through Letterman and I learned that I learned that watching Monty Python. I learned it through a lot of a lot of people, George Carlin and uh, Richard Pryor, Marx Brothers, 
Lenny Bruce. So all of those were, of course, influences. But Letterman in that moment was vital to me. He gave breath to what was inside me of something I wanted to do. And I want to play you one clip that shows one of the great examples. And when you listen to this, this is an audio show, so we don't, we're not showing these, the picture, but you'll, you can figure out what's going on pretty much. Uh, so I want you to listen to this because I don't want to give too much of it away. Just know that as you listen to this, I won't have to explain to you anymore that, oh my God, Michael was, he was taking notes from David Letterman. And I'm sure a lot of people are wondering, how does Bowling for Columbine and Fahrenheit, how, how do you trace that back to David Letterman? Well, I'm going to give you one example right now. NBC used to be owned by RCA and General Electric bought RCA, which means they also bought NBC, which means they bought David Letterman. So one night, right after the sale was announced and that GE was about to become the new owner of his show, he decides to pay a visit to General Electric headquarters in New York City to, you know, meet his new bosses. And this is David Letterman wanting to meet the CEO of one of America's largest corporations, one of our largest weapons manufacturers. And so he, he went there. It sounds like when you listen to this, they, they did send a letter. They were trying to get permission to meet the new boss at, at GE, but um, obviously they didn't respond to him. So he just thought he'd go over there anyways. This is something you never see on TV. If you see it, it's been planned. Writers have written it. They've warned the corporate headquarters that the star is coming out. You know, you know this, right? On any of these shows, it's all fake. It's all, it's all scripted. Not Letterman. Not Letterman. He just went over there. And in his hands, you won't, you can't see it, but in his hands is a large fruit basket that he wants to give as a welcoming present to the CEO of General Electric, the new owners of his network, NBC. Give a listen to this and um, I'll come back at, and, and tell you about it on the other side. Okay, here we go. Let's, let's run this. You never know what you're in for when you get a brand new boss. So when General Electric uh, bought this company, RCA and NBC, uh, I thought I would drop by the General Electric building here in Midtown Manhattan, meet my new employers, and kind of, you know, get things off on the right foot. Watch what happened, won't you? Sometime last summer it was announced that uh, General Electric was going to be buying out and taking over the uh, RCA Corporation, and of course RCA is the company that owns NBC, and as you know, NBC is the company that I work for, and the company that brings you all your favorite television programs. Well, uh, sometime in August, I guess, the uh, takeover will be complete, and uh, we're all now getting a little curious as to what kind of effect it's going to have on you know, NBC as we know it today, the programming, and I guess specifically, how is it going to influence me? And uh, what I'm really trying to get out here is, am I going to have a job? So this is the uh, General Electric building, and, you know, I have a little gift, and we thought, what the heck, let's just drop in and, uh, you know, say hello to see how it's going. And, uh, you know, they, they can't uh, object to that, can they? Let me ring the bell here first before we go in. It's a pretty big building. It was built in uh, 1931, and I believe it was originally the uh, RCA building, and then later it became the General Electric building. Let me hit that bell again. Can we go in there? Yes, sir. Uh, we just wanted to drop off a, a little fruit basket and, and say hello to the uh, the folks on the board of directors. Can you can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Hi. How are you? I'm not sure you're able to do this. Well, why not? Because we haven't gotten to the authorization. Do, do you work for General Electric? Yes, I do. Are you, are you on the board of directors? No, I'm not. Oh. Well, what is your name? I'd rather not. Oh, say no, come on. You know, we just, wanted to, we just wanted to come over and say hello. We're going to be working together, and uh, we want to get everything off on the right foot. We have this lovely basket of fruit. So do you mind if we come? Hi, what right. is your name? We received letter. the letter. Uh-huh. Okay, but we didn't get authorization. Uh-huh. We just can't, you mean we need authorization to drop off a yes. fruit basket? Yes. 
the drop off of fruit basket? Yes, you need authorization. Oh, this is going to be fun to work with these people, isn't it? To drop off a fruit basket, you need paperwork. Give me a minute and okay. I'll be right back. Okay. All right. Just a minute here. And then, uh, what is your name? Ramos, Orlando Ramos. And, you know, we're working together now. Oh, uh, that's nice. That's How do you like working for GE? It's good. Are it's they good. nice people? Good people, good people. Are they mean to you at all? Excuse me? Are they ever mean to you? No, no. Good uh, people. Christmas bonuses? Good people. <laughs> just let us come in and we'll drop off the uh, basket of fruit. Okay. These are the people that we're going to be working with. Just go on in. I'll just go on in and see what happens. Hi, how are you? I'm Dave Letterman. Nice to meet you. What is your name? I'm going to ask you to turn the cameras off, please. Okay, we just wanted to drop off I'm this basket you. of fruit. Okay. Would it's you a, cut the cameras, please? It's a gesture of goodwill. Will you We're, cut the cameras, please? We have to talk to the director right over there, Mr. Gurney. Just, uh, director, uh, a, a gesture of goodwill. We're all working together now. We're all fellow employees. And, uh, well, what do we know now of the, the takeover? Uh, how's it going to work out for us? Uh, I think you could say it's, you know, still too early to tell for sure. But uh, I warned you what? Keep moving. But we, we're kind of optimistic, you know. And, uh, Keep moving. Right. They, they did seem to enjoy that fruit basket. So we'll just have to wait and see. Keep moving. <laughs> Keep moving. Oh, my God. Um, I don't know what happened after that, but I'm sure heads were rolling. GE, that we later learned, was very pissed at Letterman. And he just took the piss out of him, them constantly. Once they did take over NBC, he was he was always after them, always on them. And And talk about biting the hand that feeds you. I mean, it was just an amazing... Thing to witness, and and the and the absolute um, audacity. Because at some point, I mean, the network will fire you if they've had enough of you. After nine eleven, when Bill Maher spoke the truth, ABC fired him. That was the end of him. So um, it can happen. It didn't happen to Letterman, and he just kept at it and kept doing more and more and more of this. And you must, at some point listening to that just now, you must have seen how, you know, I, like you're probably thinking, Mike, you know, you, you might owe Dave some money. Um, cause you, you cribbed him. <laughs> You've done this in all your movies, heading after these corporate masters and going after presidents and politicians and whatever. But as a young person, as a young adult, it was inspirational to me. And I thought to myself, well, if Dave can do this, I can do this. And going after General Motors and the CEO and Roger Smith, Roger and me, I was able to draw from what I saw Letterman getting away with. Even though I was not a known person and no, how was I going to get away with this? But I, I just didn't, I just went, I just went to my inner Dave whenever I had to confront the people that were causing so much harm to this country and to the world and to their employees and whatever. And, and, uh, um, I eventually got to thank Dave for his mentoring, for his inspiration, because, uh, in the Christmas week of 1989, just a couple days after Roger and me, my first film had its New York premiere, he had me on his show and I, uh, I'm going to play you my appearance on his show here um, right after I thank our final underwriter for tonight. And that is True Bill. Let me tell you something about True Bill. You've probably heard me talk about them here on, on Rumble before. In the last few years, let's just admit, we all went a little bit subscription uh, happy with uh, streamers, with publications, whatever. We just click the thing and boom, you know, and maybe we get three months for free or whatever. But even though it was useful, especially during the quarantining, that we did during COVID. The problem with all that is that we're still being charged for things that we forgot that we subscribed to, for things that we're not watching or reading anymore. They're dinging our credit card month after month after month. And all of that adds up to a lot of money. And that's where Truebill comes in. Truebill is the new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions you don't need, want, or you've simply forgotten about. 
listen to the statistic. On average, the over 2 million Truebill members, 2 million members of Truebill, they are saving thousands of dollars a year that they were just throwing away because, you know, we all signed up for too many things and then some of us just would forget about them. It's so easy to use Truebill and you can see all of your subscriptions now in one place and you can then decide as you look at the list, you keep the ones you want and you cancel the ones you don't want right from the app. Truebill even gives you what they call a Truebill concierge to cancel all the ones that make you call in person, right? They won't cancel unless you call them. Well, you don't have to with Truebill. So I'm encouraging you to take back control. Start canceling your unused subscriptions at Truebill.com slash rumble. Go right now, Truebill.com slash rumble, and it could save you thousands of dollars each year. You do not need to be throwing this money away. Truebill.com slash rumble. Okay, now, as I promised, uh, it's now, let's see, seven years after I sat in the studio there at 30 Rock to watch Letterman in his very first week on late night TV. And now I have, in that time, made my first film, Roger and Me. It's had its New York premiere, and they've asked me to come on Dave's show. In the days leading up to that, Roger and me had won a number of awards. I was in New York. We had won the Best Documentary Award for the, from the New York Film Critics Society. We won the same award, Best Documentary, from the L.A. Film Critics Society, the National Board of Review, the National Society of Film Critics. Oh, my God, it was just a list, one after the other. And we, our heads were spinning, and, of course, we'd never planned on any of this happening, and it did. And I felt very grateful and very blessed. And now I'm backstage in the wings uh, at 30 Rock, waiting to walk out onto Late Night with David Letterman as his guest. I'm so nervous. I am so nervous. I had only been on national TV once, and that was, I think, the day before uh, Jane Pauley asked me to be on the Today Show. And so she interviewed me on the Today Show at you know, 7 in the morning. So this is my only my second time on national TV, my first time at night. And I'm, I'm wearing the hat that I wore in Roger Me that says, I'm out for trout, one of the ball caps. I'm out for trout. And he, well, I'm just going to play it. And now I'll tell you a couple of things as it, as it closes. This is the final clip I'm going to play in my salute to David Letterman, my gratitude toward him for all those years that uh, he inspired me to do what I ended up doing and the importance of using humor to get across what we need to do for this country, for the world, whatever, uh, and to build that audience so we get those things done. And now here I was with this chance to speak to Letterman's audience about my first film. This is December 27th, 1989. Uh, let's roll it. Now listen to this. Our next guest held bingo games to help finance a documentary film that he was making about his hometown of Flint, Michigan. Uh, the film called Roger and Me has opened to lavish critical praise, and uh, there's even talk about uh, Oscar nominations. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the man behind it all, Michael Moore. Michael. Well, you know, this is a, a very interesting and entertaining and informative piece of work you've done here. Well, thank you. Yeah. Uh, had, had you done any filmmaking prior to this? No, I, I've never made a movie before. Uh -huh. um, I, I found myself unemployed and, and sitting around. What, and, what did you do before you lost your job? Uh, I was an, a magazine editor. Mm -hmm. and uh, A publication we would know of, do you think? Yeah, but one I don't want to mention because they fired me. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I know the feeling, sure. So I sued them, and I won $58,000. Sued them on, on what grounds? For firing me. Huh? And, and, and I won $58,000 from them, and I started going to a lot of movies just to relieve the boredom, and yeah. uh, uh, I was going to everything. I mean, Let me interrupt you here yeah. a second. Did the dismissal have anything to do with the hat? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's, it's a nice hat. It's a beautiful hat. Yeah. Uh, okay, so you got plenty of free time on your hands, and you start going to... 
sorry. I just, That's okay. Yeah. No. You're going to movies. Maybe it did. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to a lot of movies. For $58,000, they should have got the hat. Yeah. yeah well. Anyway, you're attending a lot of films. Oh, everything. Um, well, not, I mean, everything but Ninja or uh, uh, Neil Simon. Those are like the, <laughs> the, the two genres. I, I just couldn't sit through I those. I can't handle uh -huh. those. <laughs> but uh, everything, but everything I go, in between. Everything else I would go to. And then I thought, well, maybe I should just make a movie. Really? Know? Yeah. Yeah. And what, yeah. What, now, when you, a, a lot of people may have thought that, you know, maybe yeah. I can be an actor or a singer or a dancer, whatever. You said, maybe I should make a film. Well, fine, but then what do you do? Uh, get a camera and just start shooting. That's, that's it. I know, but you make it sound so simple. Where did you get the camera and where did you get the film and uh, how did you know what to do? And well, uh, we, well, I can't really say where we got some of it, but, uh -huh. you know. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, it seemed to work out. Anyways, yeah, we're, and three years later, I get Warner Brothers is distributing my movie uh, all across the country. Now, see, this is just amazing to me. This is really another version of the American dream. Uh, well, yeah, except this one's a reality. Yeah. You know. <laughs> well, I mean, for most people, the American dream is just a dream. Yeah. You know? so. <laughs> As most of these people can attest yeah. to. Uh, now, the, uh, the the topic of the film is about your hometown, Flint, Michigan. Yeah, and I, and I uh, Roger Smith, the chairman of General Motors, lays off uh, 30,000 people, so I decided to dog them all across the country, trying to bring them to my hometown so he could see what he did to it. Right. Now, was this the first idea for a film? Yeah, 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 that's my first idea. So you would document this, and it's you trying to get him to come back to Flint. Trying to find him, yeah, and get him to come to Flint and see what had happened to the town. Economically and spiritually, it devastated the so, community. Yeah, yeah, it's very devastated. And so, uh, but I, I, I went everywhere, followed him all over the mm -hmm. country. Uh, one, we, one of our people got arrested here at the Waldorf, trying to get an interview with mm -hmm. him. And, and we, you know, so the film builds to this point where we finally reach him. Yeah. Oh, you do? You actually get Roger Smith on Well... Film? Kinda. Yeah. Kinda. Um, is is it a is it's a documentary? Is it the cinema verite? Does that term apply here? Or? No, it's just a movie. I don't know what any of those things mean because I didn't. I mean, <laughs> no, I didn't... Your, first, your first movie. <laughs> I didn't get a film Now we, we we have a couple of seconds of the film. Is that correct? Yes, we do. Okay. Do you know what we're going to see here? Yeah. Well, the, the the town is devastated, and so it decides to become the tourist mecca of the Midwest, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and try and bring a million people a year to Flint for a vacation. So to kind of pick up the the spirits so, of so the to pick community. Pick up the spirits. They decide to become a big uh, a tourism destination. Okay. Here are some scenes from uh, Roger and Me. Watch closely. You don't usually think of tourist attraction when you think of Flint, but people here in Flint would like to change that. And they're willing to go to some pretty extreme lengths. Flint officials would like to see the local tourist economy explode. We've got some, some great facilities as far as places to stay, uh, interesting uh, places to see, museums. And uh, it, it, it's, a, it's, it's a nice community to visit. This is our visitor's logbook. I see West Germany here, Australia. Jackie, what are some of the things that uh, visitors ask us here? First off, where is the bathroom? <laughs> That's the question I get asked most. Then what is there to do in Flint, basically? Are you gonna? Are you thinking now of another another film? Yeah, I wanna. I wanna make more movies. I've, I've I've got this. You know how the Virgin Mary's been appearing around the world lately? She's in a cornfield in Texas and elsewhere. And so I thought we'd go around and try and meet her now and uh, <laughs> call it the Virgin Tour '89. All right. You know? Well, uh, regardless of what happens with this project, I think you really are to be commended because it's uh, it's really a very nice piece of work. Oh, well, and good luck to you. Nice That's meeting you. Thank, Thank you for you. being here. And uh, we'll be right back here with Michael Pan. I, I was shaking most of the time. I don't, you probably can't hear it. I think if you saw it, you would see that, you know, I'm, uh, I'm in my thirties and made my first film. And, and now here I was on Letterman and I had a chance to thank him. Um, you know, during the, they had warned me not to talk to him during the commercial break or, and I guess he sort of had that reputation. He was kind of a, you know, kind of, I, I don't know. I don't know. Whatever. Let me, all I can say is this. He was the nicest guy. He talked to me during the commercial break. We talked about the making of the film, how much he loved it. And that was just the first time he had me on the show.
over the next, I don't know, how many more years was he on? Another four years or so he was on NBC and then he switched to CBS and he was on CBS for, wow, um, 20 years maybe. And he had me on both shows, both NBC and CBS Late Night, a number of times. I don't even know the number. Well, at least a half dozen, maybe closer to a dozen. Usually when I had a movie out or a book I'd written or my TV show, he'd have me on. In fact, after I wrote my first book, which was called Downsize This in 1996, the mail came one day and there was a handwritten envelope and I opened it and it was from him. It was from Dave, a handwritten note thanking me for writing this book of essentially political satire called Downsize This and how much he enjoyed it. I hadn't sent him the book or anything. I mean, it was just like, it was just so random. And there, there was this lovely note from him. He was that kind of person. And to the, the people that he liked in the work, if he liked your work and whatever, he was solidly behind you and, and there for you. And he wanted to share it with the audience so that they would also read, watch, listen to your work. So a lot of the audience that I was able to build up was in large part because of the times that he would have me on. And I was grateful for it then. I'm grateful for it now. And so now he's in semi-retirement and uh, he's got this show that he does on Netflix called My Next Guest Needs No Introduction with David Letterman. And it's just a one-on-one interview that he does with really interesting and cool people. And um, I encourage you to watch it if you haven't seen it. But, you know, I... um, I just wanted to do this. I wanted to do this back in February when it was the 40th anniversary of his first late night show. And I wanted to do it a couple of weeks ago when he turned 75. And I'm glad that you've allowed me to do this now. I know there's a lot of things going on in the world. There are many things we need to talk about. Um, I posted my Substack for the week uh, yesterday on a Sunday called May Day Every Day about the massive, amazing thing that's going on with um, young adults who are forming unions in their workplaces. It's, you've got to read this, uh, my Substack. It's free. Just go to michaelmore.com. Uh, May Day Every Day is the title of it. And, uh, and I also lay out at the end of it, if you work in a place where you think it needs a union, then here's how to do it. Join these hundreds of other young people who are being successful at Starbucks, at Amazon, at REI, many places getting unionized. And I'll be back to talk about other things here in the uh, coming weeks. Uh, But I wanted to just share this piece of my life with you and how one person, when they don't even know it, can make a difference. That's what Letterman did for me. He didn't didn't know me from Adam, but um, he was a good soul. It still is. And I'm grateful for him in my life. Uh, I think all of us, a lot of you can say that, right? Of, of, not just the entertainment that he gave us, but also getting us to think while we're laughing at those who are doing a lot of crap to people and to this planet. And he was that person. And I wanted to share that with you tonight. So thank you uh, for listening to this. I'm going to close with a song by a singer who was, uh, I think, a very good friend of Dave's. Uh, he had him on quite often each year. Dave loved his music. Dave introduced, I think, us to a lot of people that maybe were not that famous at the time, but uh, we first got to see them. And this was the case with Warren Zevon, who died sadly at a a too young of an age. But uh, Dave gave him a lot of exposure to us, the general public. So I thought I'd close uh, tonight with uh, a song by Warren Zevon. Um, And uh, thank all of you for listening to this. Uh, Thanks to the producer and editor of this episode, Angela Vargos. My thanks to our executive producer, Basil Hamden, and everybody else who's had a hand in this. Uh, Donald Bornstein, thank you for pulling these clips together. And to Nick Quaz, all of you, much appreciation and much appreciation to David Letterman. I'll talk to you soon, and we'll go out here uh, with a great Warren Zevon song, I Was in the House When the House Burned Down. Thanks, everyone. This is Michael Moore, and this is Rumble. Shit till it all got smoked I 
in the house. 